Well, that explosion can only mean one thing. You are back on the BTI Science Bomb, the official podcast of the Boyce Thompson Institute, where we make discoveries in support of agriculture, the environment, and human health. I am your host, Keith Hannon, and we are back yet again with another talented BTI scientist. Today, we're joined by Annie Cruz from the Heck Lab here at BTI, where they specialize in researching citrus greening disease, a devastating disease killing citrus all throughout Florida and even some other states. Annie's here to tell us all about her part of that research, along with some other good news she's received recently, as well as some advocacy she does on the side. So Annie, welcome to the Science Bomb. Thanks for having me, Keith. Of course. Let's get to know you a little bit. I know I know a little bit now about how you like to travel because we... You had the unfortunate privilege of being next to my family on a, on a flight recently, all five of us. So I apologize for that. <laughs> no, it was my pleasure. It was definitely, they were among the top five babies of yeah. that plane flight for sure. <laughs> for three kids, seven and under, they hang in there pretty oh, good. Oh, yeah. Luckily, it was impressed. only an hour flight. <laughs> That's true. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about you. So you're a graduate student. So you're a Cornell graduate student who does research here at BTI in uh, the Heck Lab. So take us back to, I don't know, your childhood isn't that far away or isn't that far behind you. Uh, How did you go down the road of getting interested in science research in general? All right. Well, I, uh, first of all, very glad to hear that you think my childhood was not far away. Indicates that my moisturizers work. It is. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I think you're doing well. You're doing very well in that department. (laughs) Okay. Well, I, uh, I grew up in a small town in Appalachian, Ohio, um, which is actually a really sweet little town called Athens. Um, it's a university town, so it's has a really nice liberal vibe. Um, but yeah, as you can imagine, um, if you grow up in rural Ohio, you kind of have to appreciate the natural world around you. Right. Um, so I, I remember being a very weird child, and I remember I would collect ladybugs and make little homes for them, and you know, uh, just I'd just be really in tune with kind of the creepy crawlies in yeah. my life, which was always fun for kids to be into. Well, of the creepy crawlies, they're a good one. <laughs> they are They a don't great scare one. too many people. Right. I feel like, and as far as like a kid goes, it's a good, you know, not yeah. too creepy a crawly. And they're good luck, typically, right? If they land on you, they're supposed Mm -hmm. to be good luck. Okay. Right. So, of course, my... Glad I didn't make that up. Because I've been saying that to my kids when we see ladybugs. No, that's absolutely true. (laughs) They're good luck. Yeah. So, I figure I must have had excellent luck as a child. Right. Collect them. Um, So, yeah. Anyway, I was just really in tune with, um, I guess, nature around me. And my mom's this really amazing doctor. And uh, she sort of made me really interested in the fact that um, there are invisible microbes that we can't see, you know, germs. And that's why you get sick. And I remember, I mean, I must have been in middle school and it blew my mind to learn that plants get sick too. Hmm. Uh, so I was really lucky, you know, throughout co- throughout high school, I um, had a just a good experience with science and I was really happy. I got into the genetics and plant biology program at UC Berkeley. Um, and so that's where I went to my undergrad to do my Bachelor of Science. Um, and there I was browsing the faculty members in my department and I saw that this one professor studied plant viruses. And that just sounded so like foreign and crazy to me. And uh, and his name was Andrew Jackson, which I promise was not part of the appeal. But I thought that was really interesting, not to be confused with our president. Right, 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 right. Um, Twenty dollar bill. That's right. <laughs> uh, 
Um, so yeah, that's how I kind of, I, I remember I went to him when I was uh, visiting the college and I just told him, you know, your work is so interesting. And he must have thought I was pretty interesting too, because he offered me a job on the spot to work in his lab. Wow, and, nice. Uh, yeah. So it just worked out great. And he turned out to be a fantastic mentor. And I was able to do four full years of scientific research in my undergrad. And I just really fell in love with plant pathology. Not to downplay the significance, but I would imagine if I'm someone who's devoted their life to plant viruses and a young person comes up to me and says, I think this is so cool. I want to surround myself with more of those young people. Absolutely. And I think that's kind of a cool thing about science too, is mostly the people who dedicate their lives to that are people who really love what they study and just think it's so interesting. And so I'm kind of happy to be surrounded by those people too. Well, it's a great story too, because I think one thing you're seeing in the science community in general is kind of this renewed or maybe for the first time dedication to kind of inspiring young minds, kind of marketing to young minds that, hey, this stuff is actually really interesting if you take the time to get to know it. Absolutely. And I also, I think that um, science can be such an intimidating thing to even get into if you're a young person. But I think really, you know, it's just a bunch of passionate people who want to learn a lot and, you know, work on a problem that really matters. And I think the more young people who can be that way is just going to only help society. Yeah, I think you're right. I think as a young kid, I can remember that you just kind of reached this point in your young life where, well, geez, if I'm you know, not Einstein or valedictorian or in beyond, then things like science just aren't even a consideration, right? Like if I can't get 1500 on my SATs, then science is not a field I can pursue. Exactly. And so you kind of, you kind of push yourself out, right? You say, okay, I'm going to go this other way. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and I, from my experience, I also think that that happens perhaps disproportionately more for young women who Mm -hmm. are often, you know, they develop this opinion in school that they are not as good at math than maybe the boys um, or science. So I think, you know, any efforts that we make to sort of retain those young girls who might have that interest but think that they're not naturally great at it, mm-hmm. it you know, is so important. Because like you said, I mean, I, I think you, you don't have to be an Einstein. You just have to be really passionate about it. Right. You know, want to spend the time to learn. Yeah. And I've come to appreciate that I actually my attention span and ability to study and absorb things I think is better as I – got older yeah so if I could have had a little more patience I think maybe I would have uh, pursued something that's more tapped into more of my aptitude mm-hmm. more than my my pen in my mouth but here we are well, you're the scientist I'm the talker <laughs> and uh, now we're working together right to mm-hmm. make all this stuff happen and that's, that's great right. so uh, that is what uh, we call a nice segue mm. to talk about what are you making happen here at BTI, and how did you find your way to Cornell and BTI from Berkeley? Yeah, absolutely. So, okay, I uh, did my undergraduate at Berkeley. I'm ready, and I, I decided that I wanted to, you know, go to graduate school. Mm-hmm. And uh, here at Cornell, I did my interview, and I met Michelle Celia at the time, mm-hmm. and her name is now Michelle Heck. Um, and, you know, she's another person, like we were talking about, who's just so inspiring and passionate. And uh, she was telling me about this problem called citrus screening disease, uh, which is just causing economic devastation in Florida and now in California. And I, I thought just like, 
what a fantastic cause to rally around. And, um, you know, so I really, there wasn't even a choice. I knew I really wanted yeah. to work with this person on this project. And um, so, yeah, I came straight here. And fun fact, my first winner here was the worst winner we had had in, I think, five years. Wow. So it was a difficult transition from California <laughs> to upstate New York. But you have some Ohio roots to help prepare you a little bit. Mm-hmm. I mean, right. I don't think Ohio gets it as bad as probably we do here. Not quite as bad, yeah. but it's it's still not great. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's not good. Uh, yeah, because before I moved to uh, back to the Ithaca area here, uh, I was in L.A. Oh, yeah. So I said I would never be back to New York State, and here I would come are. back for the holidays, and I could. it was very clear that my blood had changed to where, <laughs> you know, 30 degrees used to be balmy. Mm-hmm. in January and when I would come back I'd have like nine coats on and <laughs> it was very different all of a sudden but mm-hmm. uh yeah you, that takes some getting used to yeah oh. yeah that's true I uh yeah I uh, remember I went to California and I was like I think I'm done I got rid of all my winter coats right right <laughs> that was not a wise decision um but yeah anyway so I arrived here at Cornell um and the project I'm working on was actually a totally new thing for me it was on um insects that can dis- transmit disease so spread disease from tree to tree in this case. Yeah. Um, so yeah, what I'm working on now is um, the bacteria that causes citrus greening disease. And more specifically, it has an insect vector. Um, and so I always compare that to how, kind of how mosquitoes can give us malaria or mm-hmm. Zika. Um, these insects can also give the bacteria to citrus trees. Uh, and the insect I'm talking about is called the Asian citrus psyllid. Um, so I usually call that just the psyllid. Yeah. Um, yeah, anyway, for short. For short. Just you're for you're short. on a first name basis with it oh, at yeah, this we're, point. Oh yeah, we're very familiar. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so they fly around and they have these sort of piercing, sucking, straw-like mouth parts where they um, pierce into trees and they suck up all the uh, plant sap. And as they're feeding on the plants, they regurgitate, they spit back uh, the bacteria into a plant. And that's kind of how the the bacteria was able to reach a, such a horrific epidemic stage in Florida. Um, and so for just information, uh, the bacteria can infect the tree and it causes this crazy disease um, that's fatal and it infects every type of citrus and it's currently incurable. Um, and so what happens is the bacteria gets into the plant and then it starts to grow and then the the fruit produced by the trees, it um, doesn't ripen all the way and it also tastes salty and bitter. And then eventually the fruit falls off the tree and then um, within perhaps eight years, the tree just dies. Um, so as you can imagine, if you're a grower and you've had these trees for decades and decades and maybe this land has been in your family for generations, um, your ancient like trees that are dying is just absolutely devastating emotionally and economically. Um, so at this moment, we think that every single tree in Florida is infected with this disease. Wow. Yeah, you can, for those listening, you can actually Google some of these images and see mm-hmm. just hundreds, thousands of uh, kind of abandoned uh, groves that have been taken down by this virus. Yeah, that's absolutely true. It's really serious. And actually, it's also spread to California and also Texas, so the other places in the United States where we grow citrus. 
Um, yeah, and if, in fact, for those listening, um, you can even experience this as a consumer because if you've noticed uh, in the grocery store, you, you're seeing more juice blends, uh, mm-hmm. like orange peach and orange mango. Yeah. Um, and that's because since the, the fruit, it's completely safe to eat, but it doesn't taste as good. And so um, to try to salvage some profits, the growers have to blend the fruit with other juices. Um, and so that's why you're seeing more juice blends to make them taste okay and still use some orange juice. Um, but yeah, so that's kind of how we're even seeing this in the grocery store. Yeah, it's one of the best examples, you know, when we talk about BTI science and how we work on a lot of different crop-related research projects. We talk about often that, you know, when crops go bad, you know, it has economic impacts. And I think Citrus Greening offers one of the uh, best examples, best in quotes, of what can happen when, you know, viruses and in this case, is it virus or bacteria? So it's a bacteria. It's bacteria, yeah. right? So in this case, uh, when a bacteria kind of gets loose, mm-hmm. and you know, you can see what an impact that has on job loss and businesses, and then how that hits your pocketbook when you go to Wegmans. For those of you out of the area, that's our prestigious grocery store chain. It is a wonderful. Grocery it is store. pretty great. Yes. It's it makes the winter that we just talked about far <laughs> far worth it. That is true. Uh, but it really puts it all in perspective in terms of why we need people studying this stuff. Because when it goes bad, it can be really bad. Absolutely. And this has gone pretty bad. Yeah, yeah. I would argue that this is um, one of the worst case scenarios for how a disease can be, you know, just a complete epidemic. And I think a large portion of that is because we have this insect that can just spread it so efficiently, you know. Um, and an ungrateful insect. Highly to ungrateful. to take things <laughs> as nourishment <laughs> and then give back disease. It is very true. It, Highly ungrateful. And yeah. speaking as someone who works with them, they also they have this like flight pattern where they sort of jump really high and the jumps usually result in them on your face. So just oh, really? ungrateful in every every type of way. So for people not really familiar with this insect, how how big is it? I mean, is so can we see these things walking around? <laughs> Fortunate. Well, you're describing sort of a horror movie scenario, right. <laughs> but no, it's not all that bad. They're they're quite small, actually. They're a little bit bigger than a fruit fly. Okay. So they're they're really quite small. Um, but you know, if you're paying really close attention in, a, for example, a citrus grove, or if you live in a warm place and you have backyard citrus, you can look and you can see them feeding on your trees. So tell us about. Uh, you know, any, uh, tell us a bit about some, you know, recent research you've pushed out, uh, or let me backtrack. So you've been in the heck lab for a little while now. Is there any part of the research you've contributed to or that you've put out yourself that you're kind of particularly proud of or fond of, or, you know, was just a really exciting moment for you in the lab when you were, you know, you made a discovery or you, you were able to push out a publication or anything like that? Yeah. Um, so yeah, well, I'm really proud of what I'm working on, of course. Um, so I guess I two things kind of come to mind. Um, the first thing is that, well, we just realized that this insect was a problem maybe 10 years ago. And that sounds like a long time, but mm-hmm. if, for scientists, it really takes a long time to figure things out. And so part of what I'm doing is trying to learn about how the insect can actually spread the bacteria, right? Um, and so some of my work was looking at like the proteins in the insect that are maybe binding to the bacteria and seem to be changing when the bacteria is there. Um, and so I, I was really proud 
out, I just figured out a really great way to extract blood from the insects. And I know that sounds disgusting, <laughs> but, um, and then but useful, very useful. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so I found a way to extract their blood and figuring out and figure out how it's affected by the bacteria being there. And we learned that their blood is a huge component of the immune system. And it gave us some clues as to how we can maybe help these insects fight off the bacteria, you know, use its own immune system to try to make it less of a good spreader of bacteria. So I was really proud of that. Yeah, that's very interesting because for the quote-unquote layperson like myself, you might y- your brain first goes to, okay, how can we protect these trees? Right. right? How can we protect the citrus mm-hmm. when the best answer might be how do you protect the insect that's spreading the bacteria to begin with? Yeah, you know, absolutely. And something that I think is really interesting, too, is the the insect gets infected with the bacteria, too, you Mm -hmm. know? Um, So we know the bacteria is sort of, it's dividing and it's having babies inside the insect. Um, And the insect, it it has a shorter lifespan. And so what's really crazy is, like, we're almost trying to treat an insect disease to Mm. try to stop it from giving a disease to plants. So it's a, I realize it's, it's a really complex system, but it's so true. Sometimes the best way to control a disease is just to try to stop it from spreading you know and for those people that are a little that don't follow science too closely mm-hmm. you're welcome for the visual of bacteria having babies that's probably <laughs> not something a lot of people think about but mm-hmm. certainly is a problem and also another great option for a horror movie if you're thinking right. about that Keith. <laughs> so when your mom was talking about microbes <laughs> was that you know, some kids get the talk from their parents. Was that another version of that? Like, oh, absolutely. Here's how bacteria reproduce. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she would, you know, we'd be driving to the grocery store and she would put on child's lock and be like, we're going to talk about bacteria. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> here's why we wash our hands after using the grocery cart. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so you, uh, the good news is you've been doing all of this research and not only have you been doing it and it's for a very important reason to help solve a very, uh, challenging and devastating problem, but you've, uh, you've picked up some, uh, financial backing along the way as you were recently awarded an AFRI, uh, NIFA fellowship. Tell us a little bit about what that was all about and and how you came to receive that. Yeah, well, I'm so grateful for the opportunity for the fellowship. But it's, it's um, the National Institute for Food and Agriculture. Um, it's a special fellowship that's awarded to doctoral students um, for work that is really important for agricultural fields. And so I, I applied for this fellowship, and I was just so excited to get it because it's going to fund the rest of my work during my doctorate. Um, but also, the work I proposed, I think, is really exciting and might really develop some solutions to help control this disease. Um, so I will say when I found out that I got it, uh, you know, it's a government award. So mm-hmm. you get like a really complex governmental email and it was very unclear whether I got it or not. <laughs> so anyway, I was wearing shoes with very little tread and I grabbed my laptop and I run into the hallway to find someone to help me read this email or read it with me. And then I almost fell, but did not. <laughs> and then, uh, after some frenzied activity, I, I discerned that I had been awarded the fellowship and I'm, I just think it's such a wonderful opportunity um so yeah it's gonna it's gonna um fund some really exciting work that i'm doing uh which i kind of think of as almost drug discovery but for agriculture okay so um yeah it's basically i'm looking for some 
possible molecules or just treatments um, that can sort of stop the bacteria from being able to move inside the insect's body. And then another thing I'm working on is trying to figure out um, treatments that can even stop the insect from feeding on the tree altogether. And that, as you know, would kind of stop the whole cycle before it even begins. Um, So I'm hoping that some of the things I'm working on can really tangibly help provide solutions to growers who are really desperate. Well, it's an exciting opportunity, and we were certainly very proud of our uh, BTI scientists to pull in such a thing. I believe there's only, what, seven or eight of these things handed out across the country, right? Yeah, I think it's a it's a relatively small number that's awarded, so it makes me really even more grateful. And my research indicates that you receive the maximum allowed within this grant, so... That's right. That's good. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's, a, it's a nice step forward from collecting ladybugs, I think. It definitely is better than ladybugs in jars. <laughs> <laughs> so we're talking about doing this research that you got um, esteemed funding to, to conduct, and you're describing now, essentially, an insect that's slightly larger than a fruit fly. Mm-hmm. And not only are you looking at how it feeds off citrus trees, you're talking about looking at b- bacteria inside of this insect. So how do we do that? <laughs> how do we look at the way bacteria is reproducing inside something yeah. that's the size of a fruit fly? Well, that's a really cool question. Um, <laughs> we've had to be pretty creative. Right. Um, yeah, another another thing that made us extra creative is that right now we can't even grow this bacteria. So you can't mm. even have the bacteria outside the insect. You have to really look at the relationship. Um, so we do that through a bunch of really cool techniques. Um, one of them is called proteomics. Uh, and so that basically is where we ask the question, um, what are all the proteins that are present in the insect or a particular part of the insect? And then how are they changing when the bacteria is there? And so some of my earlier work was, okay, looking at the different organs of the insect and seeing which ones the bacteria is in and then what kind of effect the bacteria might be having on, for example, the gut of the insect. Mm -hmm. Because if you imagine you're eating something that's infecting you, you might see some changes in your stomach. You might have a stomach ache or something. So that's a a rough equivalent to what I was doing. Like, okay, are we seeing effects? And um, so you can kind of see that the insect, it's sort of having an immune response. So it's responding to the bacteria. And so it's giving us some really interesting clues as to like what's happening on a molecular level when the bacteria is infecting the insect and then how can we find what's the most important part of the immune response or what are maybe things that the bacteria absolutely needs to to replicate um so yeah um i guess other tools that we use which are really interesting is we have um a tool uh it's called fish but it's actually a lot less fun than fish Hmm. um it's called fish, but it's a tool we use where we can sort of label the bacteria with different colors. And uh, so we can visually watch it moving in different tissues. And that's kind of a really like more tangible way to look at the relationship. Well, if you ever have some fun visuals of those, please share with us because well, that sounds delighted. pretty interesting. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, you've gone from this clearly uh, passionate interest Young, uh, earlier in your life uh, towards uh, plants and plants and disease and did your undergraduate, got here at BTI in Cornell. So what is, you know, sitting here, it seems like you still are in the just 
very, very early portion of your life in science, but do you have kind of a, a plan in mind for where, you, where you're going to take this research, where you will take your, your career, uh, things you want to do along the way? It's, it's a loaded question, <laughs> but you know, it's, just, it's, it's always interesting, I think, for me anyway, to, you know, to hear scientists kind of hypothesize on you know, where things will go, where yeah. they will go. Of course. Yeah, well, it's something I obviously think a lot about. Mm -hmm. um, so right now, um, I, I know it's, I mean, it's a lofty goal, but right now I want to contribute to improving our control of citrus screening disease. But then, I mean, I've really fallen in love with the work of how do insects transmit diseases. And I think it'd be really exciting to take what I know now about one disease and try to apply it to other ones using, you know, maybe different insects. And I was thinking as a sort of future possibility, it might be really interesting to see how I can apply what I've learned in a plant system to see, okay, well, how do mosquitoes, for example, transmit diseases to us? Uh, and I, I think that maybe sort of applying the things that are similar about all insect vectors could help us um, just think in a more creative way about how we can control human diseases too. So that's something that I've been really thinking about that'd be exciting. And I think that's something that people outside where we, we talk to them about BTI science and we will reference the impact that research here can have on human health. Sometimes some people might see that as a leap, but I think what you just described is a really good example of how where you, you learn something, you know, it's funny, you know, one of the prototypical examples is you hear people say, like, I can't believe the government funds millions of dollars to look at fruit flies. Like, <laughs> what does that have to do with me? Right. You know, and it has everything to do with them. And I think yeah. you just laid it out. So, uh do you ever explain that to people? Does that ever come up and kind of like why your research kind of matters to them as a person? Yeah. Well, first of all, um, I I think like a secret people maybe don't tell you is that in science, it's mostly moving small amounts of clear liquid into other tubes with different clear liquids. <laughs> so it's really, I mean, at least for me, it's really important to think about how this really applies to the real world. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm so lucky in that, you know, I can always tell people, well, do you like orange juice? Do you like citrus? And, and you can even point out that the citrus industry in Florida alone has lost $9 billion in revenue revenue and over 8,000 jobs. And that's a survey that's a few years old. So it's clearly worse now. Yeah. Um, so right now there's a clear consumer and economic importance, but I think I, I do tell people, and I think it, it makes sense to most people, which is encouraging to me, <laughs> um, that, you know, that insects that give you disease um, and insects get, that give plant diseases might have some similarities. And right. I have to think that um, coming through a different system and just thinking about things from a different way can only be beneficial. You know, like kind of thinking more creatively about problems that are really real. Yeah. So some of what you're describing, you know, isn't too far from what other people, other labs in BTI are working on. Mm -hmm. Is there any research at BTI that you kind of keep your eye on or you talk to people about or do you have any, you know favorite research going on here at BTI that isn't your research. So oh, I got to put you on the spot, you know, what a, say, what, yeah. well, what research here at BTI kind of do you, uh, do you kind of admire from afar? Well, first Besides I should ask you, it, but... 
which professors listen to this podcast. <laughs> I don't know. I know. Those analytics are not really available. I know how many people, but I don't know who exactly. Right, right. Well, first of all, I mean, BTI is filled with just incredible research. Mm-hmm. Um, one researcher that I do think is really amazing is Maria Harrison. Um, so I think, you know, the way that, so she looks at symbiosis between roots and fungi. Right. And um, I actually think that the way, so she uses a lot of microscopy and like I was saying, sort of labeling with colors um, to look at the relationships. And I definitely admire it from afar, but I also think, well, hey, you know, these are both ways of looking at two things that are interacting in a really tiny field of view and um, finding ways to look into that. You know, there's some similarities, but I do think Maria Harrison's lab does some really beautiful work. And also, if you have a chance to look up online, they make the most lovely pictures of a fungi growing there is some good visuals yeah right so it's it's always kind of satisfying when you can see that coming out of science and certainly they're working on uh, potential solutions for other big problems in agriculture which could include you know fertilizer runoff and and things like that that we see here locally as we continue to i just went to Seneca Lake, one of our finger lakes here in central New York, uh, was closed this past weekend mm-hmm. because they found E. coli in the water. Oh, and Cayuga Lake was closed a couple weeks ago because of algal bloom. So mm-hmm. uh, we're seeing that become more of a thing. It's absolutely a thing. Yeah, it's, <laughs> <laughs> it's really it's really scary. And I, I think that um, having all these brilliant minds sort of working towards this problem is, is just a little bit of a patch of hope for um, what seems to be just a problem that keeps getting worse and appearing in different places. Um, Yeah. Well, when you're not in the lab uh, being a a hero for the citrus (laughs) industry and for all of us, uh, what does Annie like to do? Do you have any hobbies that you've always have been Mm. in your life that you maintain or is there anything unique to the places you've lived that you've liked to do? What is what is life outside the lab like? Okay. Well, this is within gonna... reason. I'm not asking you to like divulge your whole life here, but I'm just no, no. This is not going to add to my street credit, but uh, <laughs> I, uh, I really love playing the flute and the piccolo. So I've been okay. playing since I was six years old, and uh, I um, used to play in all kinds of orchestras. And so I still like to practice, and I'm in a small ensemble here. So I love playing music. Um, I love playing classical music specifically. Um, slightly different, but I also really love working out. So okay. um, I uh, recently did a squat workout in which I uh, did something weird to my knee. Oh, no. That's good. I'll keep you posted on that. (laughs) Get well soon. (laughs) But no, I I really, it's it's so beautiful. We have so much nature here. So I love hiking and I love running. And I've been trying to incorporate different kinds of physical activity. So I I take judo, which I think is like really fun. Yeah. Yeah. So possibly more addition to my street credit <laughs> yeah no that's that's impressive what what is the ensemble that you said you're part of oh it's a oh the ensemble oh so i'm in a small orchestral ensemble okay um, so we're talking just a few strings and woodwinds but it's just a really great way to kind of get outside the lab and use the creative portion of your brain um so yeah it's definitely a passion of mine i put a good four years of violin in no way. early in my life and I don't know. I just, I, I, it's one of those things I blame my parents for and they blame me for, but there's a number of these things that you realize if you had stayed with it, like you hit things in the middle of your life as a young person that don't feel cool anymore, <laughs> but you realize if you had just stayed with it, you'd be so much cooler later on in life. Like so if, if I was an accomplished violinist right now, just in my spare time, 
and I could just like pop in to bars and play music with <laughs> oh, people, God, yeah. how much cooler would I be right now? You'd but I didn't. So cool. I didn't stay with it. I know you'd probably have like a violin crew. Yeah, you know, it'd be yeah. great. Yeah. So one thing I always kind of wish too is like you know you see so many pianos around. I'd really love to be able to sit down at a piano and play like yeah. a passable tune mm -hmm. but i really can't but at least you know the flute is a it's a little bit less mobile but it's, it's like... <laughs> yeah i dabbled with the teach yourself piano oh, cd yeah? roms back when cd roms were a thing which <laughs> were yourself yes, a little bit yeah, yeah okay. when your laptops could take a disc <laughs> that's <laughs> what i use for. <laughs> way back uh well annie thank you very much for joining us on the the science bomb and for sharing a bit of your research is there anything else that you you have not covered here that is very important for everyone to know about your work? Oh, gosh. I don't want to limit you to just what I'm teeing <laughs> up here. Um, no. Well, first of all, great to be here. Um, it is, isn't it? it is. What an opportunity. A lovely one. <laughs> um, no, I guess I would just say, um, you know, if, even if you don't think you're a natural scientist, maybe don't rule it out because if you have a passion for science, there's always room for you in this field, I think. So that would be my word of wisdom. Yeah, thank you for that. Because I was going to use that as a follow-up question when you mentioned you were talking a little earlier about uh, especially motivating young women to pursue science. Are there any particular or specific obstacles you see uh, standing in the way of certain groups of people that are trying to find their way into a STEM career? Well, yeah, um, I definitely think that um, the obstacles to getting into science are different uh, for women, and they're especially different for people of different races and socioeconomic statuses. And I can only speak to some of those things as, uh, as a white woman. In my experience, and from my experience speaking to women of that age range, uh, I think that the way that boys and girls are praised in school can make a big difference to uh, women's confidence into going into STEM fields. Um, so more specifically, I think that women sometimes more take more traditionally easily to uh, school subjects, and so they're given outcome-based praise. So, you know, you're so great at math, for example, uh, whereas if, if boys are not doing that way, they're given process-based praise. So why well, you've really improved from that test to the next test. And I think that um, for girls, the first time they have a failure, uh, they can very easily believe that they're no longer good at math. Um, and so I think transitioning the way that we interact with younger children in a school setting and in the home could really make a difference into women's confidence into going into a STEM field. But it's really important to note, too, that um, those barriers are especially exacerbated for, for example, women of color. Um, and so it's important to note that my experience is not what everyone's experience is. And something I always think about is, you know, I had the opportunity to do lab research in college, but I didn't have to also work a full-time job to pay my tuition. And so there's a lot of inherent privilege that I had in that. And it's, I think, important to address the more systemic issues that are holding those groups back. Um, as well as how we speak to and how we educate young children. Yeah, and I think one thing that hopefully I, I think I'm seeing changing is how that perseverance story is told. I think growing up and still even today, so much of that metaphor is explained through stories of athletics, you know, <laughs> and like when you lose a game or when you when you have a failure moment on the field, how do you how do you overcome that? Mm -hmm. Well, Science is 
a perfect place to tell that story because there's so much failure in science, right? <laughs> so all of the famous scientists have were inundated with failure. And, Absolutely. You know, and it's it's a great place to tell the story of perseverance and why you have to continue through process. Absolutely. I would say just I try to think of it like um, the Rocky montage, you know? Mm-hmm. You're trying and you're failing and you're improving and then eventually that results in a success that can, you know, be really exciting or help people. And I, I think that's could totally apply to science and also really to learning any subject that you maybe aren't comfortable with at first. Even in success, you can <laughs> you can end up pretty beat up. Absolutely. Rocky never looked good <laughs> after winning fights, but right, and I never looked good at two a.m. in the lab. Right, but, <laughs> but you know we're we're trying, and and I think that's that's the process, and it's just really important to um, to sort of reward yourself for the steps in between. Well, I think you're uh, on a great trajectory. We're, we're really proud of all your work, so congratulations on everything. <laughs> and best of luck with the ensemble. I think I think from doing enough of these interviews with different scientists from BTI, I think we could put a band together, a BTI band, at least right. play one gig <laughs> in the auditorium or something. Well, I think we should definitely do that. You can Maybe you can bring out your uh, violin. Probably not. <laughs> you can I dazzle us. <laughs> yeah, I, don't think any, I don't think that's going to help the show. I'll... I'll promote it very well for you though Uh, i will market it like crazy that'd be great you can uh maybe you can publish it on a podcast there you go yeah we'll do a small tiny desk concert there we go that would be great (laughs) i would very much appreciate that well annie cruz thanks so much for coming on the science bomb best of luck in the future and oh and if people want to know more about your research where can they where's the best place to go to learn more about your research well i do have a BTI website um, and also a website with Cornell. So um, unfortunately, I don't have the website on me, but um, you can always find more about my research and my list of publications on the uh, Cornell Plant Pathology website. My name is Angela Cruz, but friends can call me Annie. <laughs> <laughs> if you get to know her, you can call her Annie. That's right. <laughs> and also, and if there, if anyone wants more information on some of those programs you mentioned, where do we go for that? Totally. So um, you can Google Cornell EYH. Um, and then other programs that we have here at Cornell are also Grasshopper, where we organize um, lessons for local schools. Um, so I think that can also be a really great way to reach out to students. Um, but yeah, I would highly encourage anyone who sort of has daughters of that age to look up Cornell EYH. And it's a really exciting program. Well, I have a 16 month old daughter at home, ah. and I'm going to go home tonight and cover her in ladybugs and just That's hope. Right. Hope she can be another Annie. So thanks for the inspiration. This is the end of our episode. But before we go, just a reminder that you can download and subscribe via SoundCloud, Apple Store, Google Play, and maybe some other places that we can't even remember. Our next episode will be rejoined by our summer interns to hear about everything they learned and how the Boyce Thompson Institute has inspired them to pursue their career. Until then, I'm Keith Hannon, and this is The Science Bomb.